0: Listener Production. When Jessica Rowe's daughter, Allegra, was just a baby, Jess lost her job.
1: Today, with Jessica Rowe, Carl Stefanovic
0: and the Today team. Her sense of identity went with it and this ambitious, vivacious journalist began to lose her way. She felt like a failure. She thought she was a terrible mother. It's been a very hard thing
1: for me to do, but it's because... My family need me. I wanna be more present. I wanna be a more present mum for my girls.
0: A diagnosis of postnatal depression turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to Jess. It meant she could get the medication and the support she needed to reclaim her life, to feel like herself again. These days, Jess continues to work as a journalist, and she is also an ambassador for Beyond Blue and patron for Mental Health Australia. She shares her story in the hope of helping others like her. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, eat, listen and do this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Jessica Rowe. And just a warning that this episode of The Weekend Briefing contains a lengthy discussion of mental illness. Jess Rowe, welcome to The Weekend Briefing and um, welcome me to your wardrobe. I'm just being a sticky beak right now and looking over your shoulder.
1: You're looking at all my colours, my sparkles. This is what brings me joy during lockdown. I try and, because, I, you know, I love fashion. I always have. And I think for me... Fashion is empowering. It helps arm me for whatever the day might present and it can lift my mood. It can do all sorts of things. So I I love the power of clothes and I know for some people they might think that's flippant, but for me it's more than just putting on a frock. It actually helps me, as I said, lift my spirits, present myself in a particular way And it's like a costume and it's fun. And that's what I love, especially at the moment where it's hard to find the fun. I'm all for those little moments of joy each day. And like, for example, today, I've got these cute little budgie earrings, little green budgies, (laughs) and I've got my green sparkly eyeliner on because when I go out and I have my mask, it doesn't matter about your lips, but I want to have my fabulous green eyeliner showing. So it's just those small things that, work for me that I find help keep my mood good for the day.
0: You know, I don't think it's frivolous at all. I think a lot of us enjoy clothes and makeup. And indeed, one of the things people tell you to look out for during periods like this where everyone's feeling down and a bit edgy, one of the signs of a lot of mental health issues are that you stop caring about your appearance, that you don't feel like taking a shower, that you don't want to get dressed up. And as someone who has worn UGG boots for probably the last 250 days, I'm really impressed. I think I need to be doing some more frocking up. It's a chance to have some fun. How are you doing in lockdown? Because you've got two girls who are Allegra 14, I think. Oh, hey, look, right on cue. Say hello. Hi. Hi,
1: Giselle. Oh, oh, she's just brought the dog in for me, saying that the dog needs me. So, okay. She was sitting. At oh, Daff. Okay, you say he, but off you go back to yeah. work. Um. yeah. So, welcome to the joys of remote learning. There's little Daff who keeps the, our puppy dog, keeps us all sane.
0: We've just met. Giselle, who's coming to deliver your puppy dog, and you've also got another older daughter, Allegra. How are they going with the homeschooling? And more importantly, how are you going with the oh, homeschooling?
1: Oh, hello. I just want to give a collective hug to all the parents out there juggling remote learning and also the teachers, because I think as parents, yes, it's hard for us, but oh my goodness, the teachers have to put together these lessons and classes, try and engage kids. And it's even harder harder doing it remotely and a lot of them too have got kids of their own so I just think go teachers I mean I always have the utmost respect for them but now more than ever in terms of how it's going in our household some days better than others Giselle who you just saw sneak in her personality is she's very organized unlike me but more like her dad and so she is good at getting up being disciplined, even though she's not enjoying it, she'll actually do the lessons, do what she needs to do. Whereas Allegra, who's 14, in year eight, she's having a, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get emails from her teachers, a screen-free day today where she's just gone, Mum, I just, I hate it. I don't put pressure on her and nor do I do it on Giselle because it doesn't work and... All of us are in a very heightened state anyway and I think we are setting ourselves up to fail if we think remote learning is going to really be productive and also really we're going to learn anything. I just reckon take the pressure off.
0: I think you make a good point because I I think sometimes in the middle of all this we forget that we are staying home to stay safe from a potentially Deadly virus. We're not staying home to be our most productive selves. We're not staying home to become first class teachers without any training. We're staying home for the purpose of staying safe and well. And most of us are managing that. And I think that has to be enough sometimes. One of the things I really admire about you, Jess, and I have admired about you for a long time is you are very open and honest at talking about mental health, your own and the mental health of those around you. Do you think the pandemic has made all of us a little bit better at talking about our own mental health and worrying about the wellness of the people we interact with?
1: I'd like to think so. However, I still think people feel the pressure to put up a brave face and to say, oh, I'm fine. I'm all right. Don't worry. Look at what's happening in the rest of the world. They're far worse off. And of course, yes, that is the case. But it shouldn't then detract from your reality and what you're going through and your mental health because from the outside looking in, you might look at someone and think, oh, they've got it all together, they're fine, they might not have lost their job or, you know, things are tracking okay for them, but that doesn't insulate them from having a bad episode and needing to reach out and ask for help. I think what the pandemic has shown, though, is... For many people who haven't had an experience of mental illness in their lives are now experiencing it for the first time. And that can be very confronting. When you're someone who has thought, no, I'm fine, hasn't happened to me, and then it suddenly does, I think that can be a double whammy. And what I like to think of, and I've done some work with um, Australians for Mental Health, and what they very much talk about is let's use the skills of people who have had lived experience of mental illness and look to them for coping skills and examples of how you can get through it. And and I think that's almost in a way that I know with with my mental health, I've had postnatal depression and then had anxiety and depression over the years. And I know the skills that I've developed over time are helping me through this. And I think it's important that people can draw on that resource of people who've gone through it to actually go, hey, there is a way through this. How have they managed? It's not just me. It's not as if there's something just wrong with me. So I do think now more than ever, people
0: need to reach out. That's such a good point that you make because I I feel like if I think about my own friends and family and and colleagues and, and social circles, There are people who have experienced mental ill health before and while they're finding this period tough, everyone's finding this period tough, they know that it's going to end and I think when you experience mental ill health for the first time, it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, this is how I'm going to be forever. This is how my brain is going to be forever. It's going to be in this state and I'm never getting out of it and that is a terrifying thought but when you've done it before, you've got, that knowledge that it is going to end at some point and you have to ride it out. And as you say, you've got some tools that you've developed already that you can put into place. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your experience of postnatal depression? Because you've got two daughters. How aware were you? Was that the first time you'd come up against mental ill health in your own life?
1: I'd had anxiety as a teenager. My mum has got bipolar disorder, so I grew up caring for my mum and my two younger sisters, so I was very aware of the impact that a severe mental illness can have on a family. But I was someone who, and I think this is often quite common in kids of parents who have a mental illness, I thought if I could insulate myself and be capable and I could be the one who copes, I'm the one who keeps the show on the road, cheers everyone else up, I'm like the tap dancer of the family, that will protect me from having any episodes or problems myself down the track. So, as, so that served me a time, that coping mechanism, and it helped me very well early on in my career, which was all about putting on the same consistent face, forging through, getting on with things. However, when I had Allegra, who's now 14, quite soon after she was born, I started to experience emotions and feelings that were more than just the sorts of emotions you have as a new mum. It was more than just being tired. I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that I wasn't right, but I was too ashamed to tell anyone. And what I found so shocking about that was. I was someone who thought I understood mental illness. Having cared for my mum, I have a very good relationship with my mum. We, in the past, had done a lot of work together for Beyond Blue, talking about our family's experience, talking about the public message, there should be no shame. So I'd done all of that publicly. But when I myself realised that I had an illness, that I had a mental illness, I was so ashamed because I thought, which is what often you think and of course it's wrong, but I thought at the time that what right do I have to be depressed, that I have everything going for me, this shouldn't be happening to me, I'm so ashamed, I can't possibly tell anyone about this, I'll ignore it and it will go away, which is the worst thing you can do. But I still was able to draw on those coping skills I'd developed since being a young girl to put on the brave face. No one around me had any idea how much I was struggling. And I was getting sicker and sicker. I had terrible anxiety. I had terrible obsessive thoughts about what might happen to Allegra. I had terrible thoughts about objects, seemingly harmless objects in our house, like the carving knife, like a clock, all these sorts of things and the damage that they could do to my newborn baby. And so they were really frightening thoughts, something that I'd never been in my head before and they got worse and worse. I wasn't sleeping. I was having panic attacks. I felt like there was a pane of glass between me and the rest of the world. And that is such a terrifying feeling, especially for someone like myself who is very touchy-feely and likes to be engaged with people. So I felt numb. What didn't help as well was that I was having problems breastfeeding and I, so then I started to get it into my head that if I couldn't breastfeed my own baby, then I must be the world's most terrible mother and therefore I'm a bad mum and all these terrible thoughts that just keep going round and round and round. And I remember I got to my rock bottom when I decided to hide the carving knives in our garbage bin. I thought I'll wrap them up in rubbish, I'll hide them and then all those thoughts will go away. And when I was doing that, I was thinking if anyone could see me now, because it was at 4am in the morning, what on earth would they think? And that was when I knew I thought I have to tell someone because I cannot keep going like this. And I told my mum because I knew she would understand having her experiences of mental illness and I just knew she was a safe safe place to go to. And so I told my mum and mum was Wonderful, because she said she made me promise two things. She said, promise me you will talk to Peter, my husband. Promise me you will talk to your doctor. So I made my mum those two promises.
0: And what happened next?
1: The conversation that I knew I had to have with my husband, I would say is the hardest conversation I've ever had in my life because I felt like a failure. I felt like not only was I letting him down, I was letting our brand-new baby down who we'd gone through IVF to conceive. I knew how lucky I was to have this healthy baby and that I was physically healthy. So I just felt like an absolute failure. But I I knew I had to tell him. He was back at this particular time because during these these early months of Allegra's life, Petey was still working for 60 Minutes as a reporter, so he was travelling a lot. He was away which actually made it easier for me to pretend everything was all right because I could lose it when he wasn't around and then he'd come home and I'd have it all together. And he was home this particular weekend and I knew I had to talk to him. And I cooked his favorite meal. We were watching telly, had Rocky Road in the fridge for dessert. And I kept procrastinating. I thought, once we have dinner, once the show finishes, once we have the Rocky Road. And then, you know, we were talking and he, he calls me Pussycat because I'm a crazy cat lady. And he said, oh, Pussycat, I'm so proud of you. You are just doing so well. Oh, it's just amazing. It's wonderful. And I took a deep breath. I thought, now is my moment. I have to tell him. And I took a deep breath and I said, it's not, it's not. I am frightened. I'm really frightened that I have postnatal depression and I don't know what to do. And Petey being the beautiful man that he is, He took me into his arms and he told me it's going to be okay. Did it help? That is what I needed to hear that night. I didn't need to hear what often well-meaning people might say to someone who comes to them for help. You'll be right, so-and-so is far more worse off. Don't be ridiculous, you're imagining it. That is not helpful to say to someone who comes to you asking for help because it has taken so much courage for that person to open up and to say, I'm not okay. And then what was wonderful was that Petey was then able to, the next morning I got in to see my doctor again and I poured my heart out to her and she then organised for the very next day. So two days after I'd asked for help, she then got me in to see a specialist in postnatal depression. So I realised how lucky I was to get the right help early on because I appreciate for many other people the difficulty in accessing the right care. And I remember then when I saw my psychiatrist, I dressed very you know, immaculately to see her and, and I sat down and she said to me, the first thing she said was, you can stop pretending now. So a bit of weight came off my shoulders because she could see that I was trying to keep everything all together. I told her everything. I told her all about my obsessive thoughts, which I hadn't, I told my mum, but I hadn't told Petey at this point. I hadn't told anyone really. And I was convinced that she was going to say, right, you're going to hospital. We're taking your baby. That's it. But she looked at me and she said, that is normal. And I said, normal. I am a crazy lady, what I've just said to you. She said, no, no, what you've said to me is normal for someone who has postnatal depression and that again was what I needed to hear because she was validating what I was feeling and I said well what do I need to do and she said well you can keep seeing me a couple of times a week and she said of course there's medication and I went right get me started I want to take it.
0: And how did you react what was it like being told that you should try some medication to help manage your mental health?
1: We still laugh now because she said, I don't think I remember having a patient so eager to take meds. <laughs> she says, often I have to kiss people. But I knew I was going to do whatever it took to get better. And I knew what medication had meant for my mum. And, of course, bipolar is very different to postnatal depression, but I'd seen how much it had helped her. So I had no problems in getting cracking on the medication. And then it was about three weeks after I began the medication, I remember feeling this slight shift. I was standing in our front garden and I could suddenly smell the jasmine. It was springtime in Sydney and it had been flowering along our side fence for some time. I hadn't smelt it up until that moment. So to me that was such a symbol of, oh, I could start to get out of my head and I could feel this beauty outside of me and it was this beautiful stirring, this I liken it to like this change in the breeze and I felt that, yes, I was starting to get better. And, you know, looking back on that rock bottom time, what I realised was that I didn't have to be perfect I'd tired myself and not thinking I had to be a perfect mum. You know, I had to be the perfect daughter, the perfect wife, have the perfect career, be the perfect mum, breastfeed, do this, do that. But once I started to let go of those expectations and pressure that I was putting on myself, yes, society does it, but I was doing it the most. Once I started to let go of that, I started to realise it was okay not to be okay.
0: One of the things that I experienced when I was quite unwell was there was such attentive care given to my physical health. You know, so many doctors. I think at one point I was going to 13 specialists. There was such care put into my physical health and not one of those doctors ever said, are you seeing a psychologist? It was just treated as not as important. Like we've got to deal with the big problem. That's a kind of side problem. Rather than recognising you can't live life functionally and happily when you're dealing with that kind of mental distress and that it's just as important and needs to be taken just as seriously I'm so glad that we have you in this country talking about this especially for new mums because I think there are a lot of new mums who do experience quite acute mental distress and as you say they they often think well this is normal this must be what having a baby is like you are a very much an acclaimed television presenter. Most people who are listening right now will have seen you either reading their news or speaking on Studio 10 or Weekend Sunrise or the Today Show, whatever it was at some point or another. Did you worry when you started speaking honestly and openly about mental health, whether it would affect your work? Because there's a lot of people who I think feel like they've got to stay in the mental health closet to their boss and to their colleague's because it might risk how people think about them.
1: And I understand that fear and emotion very much because the the unfortunate reality of how we live is that people with mental illnesses are still discriminated against. They're still judged. We're still judged. There's still sort of this sense of, oh, no, we can't do that, or, oh, no, that might upset them. or And it takes time. In terms of was I worried... When I spoke about my postnatal depression, it was I had a terrible sort of work time on the Today Show. I would lost my job and I'm sure that contributed to my postnatal depression. And then I did a show called Dancing with the Stars and Allegra was about eight months old at the time. And I can't dance, but I had this notion, this again notion that if I won then I could regain my career and I get a job.
0: Oh, you'd be redeemed.
1: Yes, this ridiculous idea. I've since realised that actually, and I know it's the cliche, no, I didn't win. I was eliminated, but I'm so glad I did it because I learned so much about myself. But I also learned about doing things just for the joy of doing it, not for the goal at the end. But why I, I mentioned that, I, I know I'm diverting a bit from your question, but so I was working for Channel 7 at the time and I did an interview with New Idea sort of announcing that I'd be joining Dancing with the Stars and my charity that I chose was Beyond Blue. And the journalist a great journalist called Robin Foister said to me is there any particular reason? And initially I said oh well, because of my mum and I'm very passionate about these things and that's it, full stop. And then off she went. And then I thought about it and I thought, no, (laughs) you need to be honest about this because I thought I was a hypocrite if I didn't own what was happening with me, because publicly my message had always been, there should be no shame around mental illness. So I rang Robin Foister, we did the interview again, and I told her about my postnatal depression. And that was the start of it. I then wrote an article for Vogue where I detailed what the thoughts were like in my head. And then what happened, the feedback I got from women, from other mums who would stop me in the street, at the cafe, at the beach, at the playground emboldened me to keep talking because they said thank you for doing that that's me or that's my sister or older women you know who'd be in their 60s 70s I went through that but I couldn't tell anyone and it it makes me quite emotional thinking about it because that was again what inspired me to keep talking about it and I didn't care (laughs) if then there were repercussions in terms of employment because the overriding message that I was getting from people was keep going. We need to do this. And that was far more meaningful for me than a particular job. But, of course, I was under a contract, so I was pretty much working for myself. And I was lucky because my husband had a very secure job and it wasn't as if I was risking the main income by speaking out. So I again realised that I was lucky, but at the same time, because of all those things, I had to talk about it. If I couldn't, with all of that going for me, how could I help anyone else? So that's why I continue to do it. And I think it's so important that if you can, you talk about it.
0: I think you have a real history of giving people permission to feel how they're feeling and for that to be okay. And I think that's a very generous thing to do, which leads me to your new podcast with listener. Tell us about Jess Rose Big Talk Show.
1: Oh, I am loving doing it because as you can tell, I do like a chat. (laughs) I love any opportunity for a chat and to connect and talk to people. And so what I love about doing the Jess big talk show is we're talking about the things that matter. Yes, we're having a laugh and a joke as well, but it's really, we're looking at those big things that happen in your life that we don't always talk about because we might be frightened to, we might not want to be seen in that way. We think, how might people judge us? Or that's perhaps not a good thing for me to be aligned with or to think about. But but all of us have those lights and shades in our story. And that's what makes us, I think, so wonderful, that, that light and shade. And so what I want to do and what we're doing with the podcast is having those conversations with people that you think, you know, you think you might know their story because they're in the public eye. But it's about getting to the heart of them and what it is that that matters to them whether it be love loss career kids mental health addiction and everything in between but it's those big things that count in their lives that perhaps they haven't spoken about before or haven't been as open about before so that's to me in this time of physical isolation I want people to feel socially connected through listening to these conversations. So it's almost as if if you were to listen, you were in the room with us having that conversation as well.
0: Well, I think all of us could do with a little more company at the moment. And I thank you so much for giving me your company today. Jess, thanks for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, right back
1: at you, beautiful girl. I think you're amazing.
0: That's it for my conversation with Jessica Rowe. You can catch Jess Rowe's big talk show on the listener app now. And if our chat brought up anything difficult for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. And welcome back to The Weekend List and welcome to Tate McGregor. Tate, we're facing another, yet another, Weekend in lockdown. Give us something to do, my friend. Give us something to entertain ourselves with.
2: Here you go. Get ready for a laugh with this one. It's a watch. Um, I've got a comedy series for you on binge and it's called Dave. It stars the real-life comedic rapper Little Dicky who you might remember from that 2018 song Freaky Friday with Chris Brown and they swap bodies and then Ed Sheeran comes in there then there's Kendall Jenner at the end and then he did a song in 2019 called Earth and that one had a bunch of celebrities like like Leonardo DiCaprio, Ariana Grande, Shawn Mendes. He's just, like, a really funny guy. Well, he's created a TV series, which is a fictional telling of how he came to be Lil Dicky. So he's convinced that he's meant to be the world's next biggest rapper and... He just doesn't ooze that charisma. He doesn't have that sort of energy. It's kind of crude, but it's a whole lot of fun and you will see a heap of celebrity appearances in there like Macklemore, Justin Bieber, some of the Kardashians, Kevin Hart, Lil Nas X. So to unwind at the end of your day, I'd highly recommend Dave on Binge. Do you believe in me as a rapper? Ooh, ooh, ah, ah, testing. All these rappers in here popping. You talking about, hi, my name is Dave. You should be like, what's up? It's Little Dicky it's going to be the biggest name in hip hop.
0: But what are you up to? You're cooking a storm in the kitchen. I am yet again. Okay, guys, you need to be sitting down for this one because I'm about to reveal some cooking magic. You know, when you go into really expensive boutique-y kind of bakeries and they have those enormous meringues that are almost the size of your head and they're all puffed up and perfect and they cost like $8 and it's a meringue, right? Like it's sugar and egg. Haha, <laughs> no! No, it's not sugar in egg. I am recommending, and you can find the recipe on sbs.com.au, aquafaba meringues. I'm going to spell that A Q U A, aqua, like the water, faba, F A B A. And what they are is they are meringues not made with egg whites. They are meringues made with the leftover juice that chickpeas sit in in a tin. So you buy a tin of chickpeas, you dump the chickpeas out and you make something else with them and you use the gross juicy stuff that you'd normally pour down the sink and you whip that up like eggs, you add one cup of caster sugar and you get the most miraculous meringues you have ever tasted. You are welcome This is what we're going to eat for the rest of lockdown now, Tate.
2: Okay, I've tried this before and when I put them in the oven, they just all melted into a flat like sticky toffee tray. What is the trick? Is it maybe I didn't put
0: enough sugar in? No, I don't think so. And it sounds like you perhaps didn't whip for long enough. We will workshop this offline.
2: What else have you got for us? (laughs) Well, this one was sent in by a listener called Kathy. If you want to send us a recommendation, make sure you hit us up on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast and slide into our DMs. But it's an ABC series called All My Friends Are Racist. Don't worry, it's actually a comedy as well. They're 15-minute episodes, and here is a little bio because I haven't watched it myself. It says, In the Survival of the Fiercest... Two 20-something black millennials decide it's time to call out the racists. They think it could cause a revolution, but instead it causes a downgrade in lifestyle. Look, has me intrigued, has me intrigued, and you know what? No time off my back if they're 10 to 15 minute long episodes. Sounds good. ABC view you can catch that one.
1: We can't let these racists win. Let's close that gap and decolonize sis. It is time
0: to clap back. Move, I'm black! That's
2: offensive. Um, You're wearing a kimono.
0: I am ready. I will sign up for that one. Sounds like a lot of fun. My final recommendation is a book and it's a book by Thomas Mayer. And if that name sounds familiar to you, Thomas was actually the first guest we ever had on the weekend briefing. He has written a new book. It's called Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons. It brings together his beautiful prose and poetry about fatherhood but he's also invited 12 other people to write letters to their sons fathers or nephews and he brings together a range of perspectives that offer the greatest celebration of first nations manhood it is really quite beautiful and there's an awesome endorsement by tara june winch on the cover and you know if that woman told me to walk into fire i probably would that's it for The Weekend Briefing. We had loved having your company. If you would like to spend some time with us again, then you need to follow us. You need to head to the listener app and get amongst it or go to wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It will help other people to find The Weekend Briefing. The Briefing will be back bright and early on Monday morning where we will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.